Uh, the scripture story is a little lengthy this morning, so I'd invite you to be seated, if you would. Because this morning we come to the story of Esther. And Esther is an orphan who lives in uh, Persia while the Jews have been exiled there and are under Persian rules. She is, uh, her mother and father have died. She is adopted by a relative named Mordecai. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, but she's given the name Esther. The ruler of Persia is a king who is celebrating his reign with a large uh, celebration uh, culminated in a, in a week-long drinking fest. And so they've been drinking as they went along, but they decide to step it up a notch. And so all the men are drinking the best of everything. The instructions are withhold nothing from anyone. And so in the middle of this drinking fest, the king decides he wants everyone to see his beautiful prize trophy, his queen. And everyone can admire his, her beauty. So he calls Queen Vashti to come make an appearance. And she has too much self-respect and, and pride to be used like that and refuses to come in in front of all these drunken men. Well, uh... The men of, and the nobles of the area are like, we can't let this go unpunished. And all the women will quit doing what their husbands tell them to do. So to make an example of Queen Vashti, she is stripped of her crown. So after the king's recovered and sobered up, he's got to get about the business of getting a new queen. And so they decide to have a beauty contest. And one of the con, uh, contestants is Esther. Esther is told by her adopted father, Mordecai, not to let anyone know that she is Jewish. Well, sure enough, Esther wins, which is great. But the bad news is that Mordecai refuses to pay respects or bow down uh, behind a very self, uh, in front of a very selfish, self-important man named Haman. And so Haman is so furious that Mordecai disrespects him and won't bow down before him that he decides he'll take it out on all the Jews. So he goes to the king and says, I will pay you this sum of money. If you'll issue an edict that allows us on such and such a day to kill all the Jews in the province. And the king grants it. Well, Mordecai is obviously distraught. He dresses in sackcloth and ashes, which means like he tears his clothes. And he goes and he hangs out in front of the royal palace and sure enough gets Esther's attention. And so she sends down... um, Clothes for Mordecai and basically says, clean up and come in. But he refuses to do so. Uh, Mordecai has uh, rendered good service in the past. He once overheard a plot to kill uh, the king of Persia. And he brought it to Esther's attention. And uh, the king's life was saved. And he's a man of good intention. But he's now distraught because he and his whole people are about to be destroyed. And so he sends message basically to Esther, you need to talk to the king. And so this, as we pick up the text, is in chapter 4, verse 12, in their exchange of of messages. She is told, um, uh, Mordecai, it's not as easy as you think. If you go into the king and he hadn't asked for you, he'll kill you. That's just the way it goes. And so he says, uh, do not think that because you are of the king's household that you alone of all the Jews will survive. If you remain silent at this time, says Mordecai, Help and deliverance for the Jews will come from some other place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have been brought to royal position for such a time as this. So Esther sends a message back to Mordecai and says, Gather all the Jews in Susa and tell them to fast. For three days they are to eat or drink nothing. For three days and three nights. And I and my attendants will fast also. And when it is done... 
I will go into the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Well, sure enough, she goes into the king. And and interestingly enough, uh, the king has insomnia and he asks for like old records to be brought um, so he can kind of review his history. And he comes across the event where Mordecai saved his life by revealing this plot. And he said, man, did anything ever happen to this guy? Did he get rewarded? And they said, well, no. So they decide to reward Mordecai. At this time, Haman, the bad guy, the self-important guy, had been planning to execute uh, Mordecai before all the other Jews and had built a 75-foot gallows so everyone could see it. Well, now he knows he's in trouble. And he knows it's going from bad to worse when the queen tells him about how he has been tricked, uh, the king has been tricked into issuing this edict. And so he gets on his hand and knees and begs Queen Esther for forgiveness while she's reclining on the couch. And it looks like a compromising position. So the king comes in and is like, what's this? You're attacking the queen, my wife? And he sentences Haman to death and he dies, sure enough, on the 75-foot gallow that he had built for Mordecai. Mordecai gets elevated, all the Jews get saved, and that's how the story goes. It's an amazing story of a beauty queen with significant influence. You know, I think about the the stereotype, uh, which I know that you are familiar with. You know, they always ask the beauty contestants, you know, what they want and what they work for. And, of course, the answer is they always want world peace. But I haven't seen any of them pull it off yet. Except Esther. She gets close. This beauty queen saves her people, the Jews. So for a few minutes, I just thought we'd look at Esther and see how was she able to do this? How was she able to change her world? Was it because of her beauty? Sure enough, her beauty had won her the crown. But as we know, beauty is, as they say, just skin deep. And beauty didn't help Queen Vashti. She lost her crown. Beauty had not helped Esther. She told Mordecai, the king hadn't asked to see me in 30 days. I'm not sure what my chances are here. Beauty is limited in its power. And yet it's so amazing in our society how we chase after it with our anti-aging products and and all of our exercises determined uh, to recover our, our earlier vitality and youth. And how a number of us will sit there and look in the mirror and assure ourselves that 60 is the new 40. But it just doesn't fly like that. Not in God's economy. We learned earlier this summer in the story of King David. Remember the shepherd boy, the smallest of all the brothers? And when Samuel gets ready to make the tallest guy king, he's told by God, I don't do it like that. Everybody else looks on the outside, but I look on the inside. So here's what we're going to do. Let's look inside Queen Esther for a moment. There's obviously more going on in this beauty pageant winter winter, than just her beauty. What is it that we would look on the inside and find in Esther? I want to suggest two things that I think are pretty obvious and maybe two things that aren't quite as obvious. To me, the first thing that's obvious is this is a woman of compassion. This is a woman who cares when she sees Mordecai in obvious distress, when he's torn his clothes and he's got ashes covering him. uh, She sends him clothes and says, come on up, let's talk. Well, he refuses to do that, but it's obvious he cares. She cares about her adoptive father. She demonstrates not only compassion for him, but for her entire people. And in her care for her entire people is willing to risk her life. You know, all the way through the Bible, I think it teaches us that God's servants and God's prophets are marked first and foremost by compassion before anything else. It's Moses' compassion for his people when they are oppressed by the Pharaoh that leads them to 
kill a guy, run for his life, but then come back and lead them into the freedom of the Red Sea. And yet he has that same compassion for his people when they later will turn against him after they've crossed the Red Sea. He's a man of compassion. Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, looked on the crowds and had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And compassion, I think, is the very first thing God looks for in in a heart. And, And I think God finds that sort of compassion irresistible. But that's not all to Queen Esther, because she is also has courage inside her to act on that compassion. It's an amazing thing when she gives this speech and she says, okay, you know it's against the law. If I go do this, I could get killed. Have you ever heard the phrase, law of the Medes and the Persians? It's in the story of Esther, but basically that means once it's written down, there's no change in it. And what's written down the law is that the king doesn't call for you and you show up. You're a dead woman. You're a dead man. And yet she has the courage to walk in there anyway. It's no wonder that Winston Churchill said years ago that the foundational virtue, the greatest of all virtues, he claimed, was courage. And you can see that in Esther. But I want to tell you this morning that there's two other things that may not be as obvious to you, but if you look, you see them. The third one is this. Esther has a real sense of connection and community with her people. Esther is involved in what we might call a group or family solidarity. She knows that the important thing in life is not what happens to her. She knows it's much more important what happens to her entire people. And Americans find that difficult because it's always about, I'm going to make this decision and, and how it affects me is the important thing. But people in the biblical times didn't think that way. It's like, If I do this or don't do that, how will it affect the entire group? It was the the family and the larger extended family that mattered, not necessarily the individual. And so your choices were made for the benefit of everybody, not just for yourself. And that's what Esther does. She has this group uh, mentality. And I want to tell you, if she didn't have it, it would be obvious. Because she would have chosen a different choice and the story would have come down a completely different way. I'm reminded of the famous uh, event that took place in Nazi Germany. You're probably familiar with it. In the late 1930s, there was a Christian pastor named Martin Neimoller who got arrested and put in a concentration camp. And after the war, he made speeches in Germany, and he also came and made speeches in the United States. And he, uh, he described a situation in this manner, though he would edit it and change some of the, uh, uh, the groups that he mentions. But this is basically what he said. He said, when the Nazis came after the trade unionists, um, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a trade unionist. When the Nazis came after the socialists and rounded them up, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a socialist. When the Nazis came after the Jews, he said, I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak up. And then he said, when the Nazis came after me, there was no one left to speak up. When you don't have that sense of connection in larger community, the story goes down in a completely different way. And that's true in Esther. Esther knows that she is part of a larger people. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. That's the name that counts. But there's one more thing. And you wouldn't see it, and most people don't see it, because what you see is a queen and, and, and a beauty But underneath there's something else, and that's her identity, which I say to you makes all the difference in the story today. The story starts out, she's an orphan, so she's pretty powerless, but Mordecai adopts her. And then next thing you know, she's a queen, but she's not all that powerful because he hadn't called for her in 30 days. But there's an identity that is stronger than orphan, 
and stronger than queen. And that's the identity of being a daughter of God. A princess or a prince. And that's what nobody knows except Mordecai. They don't know that there's a God who walks with her and before her and does amazing things that no one sees coming and moves the story miraculously. They don't realize she is connected to a throne much more powerful than the king of Persia. She is a princess, a daughter of God. And I tell you that because I think in some ways Esther's like a fairy tale. You know, think about some of the fairy tales we love and how often they uh, involve uh, a hidden prince or princess that maybe they know they're a prince or a princess, but nobody else does. Or maybe they don't even know they're a prince or a princess until something happens to them. And so the frog, who's a prince. The beast, and Beauty and the Beast is a prince. Sleeping Beauty, sacked out, unable to awaken, is a princess. Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. It's a king who has not claimed his crown. And all these stories, I think we love them because they identify a deeper truth about who we really are. We are all prince and princesses in the kingdom of God. I think it was said best when William and Kate got married. Do you remember? I think it was the Bishop of London in his speech who said, the beautiful thing about a royal wedding is that we are all prince and princesses. This is really what our life looks like. And, of course, the prince and princess gets revealed a number of ways. You know, for uh, Sleeping Beauty, she has to be kissed. For the frog prince, he has to have a kiss. For, uh, for the beast, he has to have tears. Uh, for Aragon, there's, there's a battle. There's always something that reveals you as the prince or the princess. And this is what I want to say. Today in the Bible story, I think we realize that we often don't know who we are until crisis comes. And we step out and into our true identity. It is a crisis that makes me a prince. It is a crisis that makes you a princess. And reveals that to the whole world when you step out as God's people with confidence of God. Now here's the good news this morning. Not only are you each in Christ, prince and princesses, but the really great news is you got crises galore. Pick. Unaccompanied children crossing the border. People lonely. People battling cancer. Children who can't read. Pick one. Step into it. And find who you really are. But you will not live into that identity until you step into the crisis. Pastor Scott was uh, telling us a story this week. And and so, you know, I, I... I checked up, in, 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 uh, which sometimes I do with Scott. And um, oh, he's such a great storyteller. Uh, and he's telling me about Superman. And he asked this question. And I thought, you know, since Comic-Con was this past weekend, all the, I don't know if you saw the picture in the paper today of the, of the Incredible Hulk signing autographs uh, here. But um, think about Superman for a moment. You got the image? Everybody got it? Tell me about his costume. What's his costume? Well, I'm like, oh, I know that, Scott. He's got like a red cape. He's got those blue tights. He's got the big S. And Scott says, uh-uh. He's from another planet. His costume is the glasses, the coat, the tie, the Clark Kent persona. And Scott told me the story, and you can, you can find this on Wikipedia. It's there. 
Superman was invented by a Jewish teenager named Jerry Siegel. And Jerry Siegel was reflecting on what it's like to be a Jew in America and trying to fit in. And how he had to dress over his real identity. And he creates Superman, whose real identity is with the cape and the power and the strength, but who costumes himself as just the mild-mannered Clark Kent. And I think that is so true, not just for Esther, but for each of us. We are underneath the costumes we wear this morning, people of unspeakable power, because we are sons and daughters of the King. And with the crises running amok in our world today, the world waits for you to take off this costume and show them your true identity.